By the end of the Second Vatican Council, it had become customary for many attending the event itself to speak of the minority party and the majority. This terminology is employed unselfconsciously, for example, in the Journal of Yves Congar, as he writes in 1964 and 65. Both parties, if there really were such, were no doubt each numeric minorities within the larger whole, but they represented ideological tendencies vying for influence. In retrospect, we can say that they were divided by a common question. How should the church understand herself and her mission in the modern world in the wake of the decline of ancient monarchical regimes and the rise of modern secular democracies with the ensuing secularization in Catholic countries that was ongoing? Both sides were, in a certain sense, seeking to preserve the fullness of Catholic teaching and to promote that teaching in the modern era. Both hoped for the reunion of the church with the predominant culture, but with differing points of emphasis. One tendency was to see this aim in primarily conservationist terms, the minority emphasizing the preservation of authentic intellectual and spiritual traditions over and against an increasingly non-religious modern secular era. The other tendency, the seeming majority, was, saw this aim in primarily dialogical or optimistic terms, aiming at a kind of renovation of the public face of Catholicism and seeking opportunities in the signs of the times for a way to bring the church's message to modern man. Neither side of this engagement wanted to do away with the privileged study of Thomas Aquinas in the life of the church, but they tended to envisage that study in fairly different terms. Here one might consider two of the most balanced voices, one from either side. First, then, consider Cornelius Fabro. The renowned Italian Thomistic scholar, an Angelicum graduate, we should note, was asked to compose a votum in the early 1960s as part of the Commission on Seminary Education that would eventually produce Optatum Totius, the Second Vatican Council document on priestly uh, formation. Fabro predicted that in the votum, Fabro predicted that in the coming years after the Council, there would continue to develop in European civilization what he termed a post-religious subjectivism that he denoted by the classical anti-modernist term immanentism. You might think of Charles Taylor's notion of the buffered self. He, he foretold that this cultural tendency would lead to a twofold error. On the one hand, an extreme form of skeptical rationalism that takes any appeals to absolute truth claims derived from divine revelation to be an imposition that is arbitrary upon the human freedom of upon the freedom of human consciousness to derive for itself the content of personal truth claims, in effect the rise of extreme versions of private truth theories. And on the other hand, he foresaw what he termed an extreme fideism, a theology that takes refuge in the integrity of traditional forms of thought without due reference to metaphysical realism, the philosophical study of nature, ethical objectivity, and a healthy confidence in the positive relationship between supernatural faith and the modern natural sciences. To remedy this twofold tendency of subjectivism and fideism, which Fabro predicts will enter deeply into the life of future clergy as well as Catholic laity, he counsels a sophisticated engagement with the study of St. Thomas in both seminaries and Catholic universities. 
And here he notes the importance of the consideration of first principles of speculative and practical reason, the study of metaphysics, and of the constitution of the human person in Thomistic terms, we might call it hylomorphic personalism, knowledge of the arguments for the existence of God, consideration of the relation of creation to the modern natural sciences, and so forth. Consider, secondly, from the other side, you might say, the majority wing, Yves Congar. Interestingly, Congar saw the council as a kind of vindication of Thomism, at least in its spirit and method of procedure. Now note that this is quite different from the explicit remarks of Joseph Ratzinger, who thought the event signaled a new paradigmatic shift in theology toward the ressourcement of older patristic models of engagement with culture, rather than those represented by scholasticism. In an essay published in 1967, Kangar contrasted two visions of Thomism at the Council, one particularly focused upon, quote, a system of abstractions and of prefabricated solutions, unquote, to intellectual problems, and he associates in the essay this form of Thomism with the early modern French-Dominican Thomist Charles René Billuart as a paradigmatic example of what you might call a kind of manualist scholasticism that Congar wishes to distance himself from. It is perhaps imaginatively reasonable to think Congar may be thinking of another scholastic Thomist of his own day who taught in this room and in these environments. Congar claims that this kind of Thomism developed out of the long-standing rivalries between religious orders and their theological schools, the ancient sacred combats between Thomism and Scotism and Suarezianism, and is more animated by inter-ecclesial quarrels seeking to define theology from within in its pristine Catholic form rather than with vivid engagement in evangelization of the living world around the church. Catholic intellectual life is most healthy by contrast, so Congar argues, when it engages with the real intellectual puzzles of its age and helps to make the gospel more accessible to those both inside and outside the church by resolving the questions of the day held in common by all in the light of Christ and the truth of the Catholic doctrine. In other words, Catholic theology should be missionary in nature. Congar notes that the Council follows the example of Aquinas in this regard, citing him, he says, St. Thomas was not a man who repeated categories and conclusions supposedly formulated once and for all. He spent his life in seeking out new texts, in overseeing the production of new translations, in dialogue with all the quote-unquote heretics of his time, those who did not think like him, either within or outside the church. The council is right, Congar adds, we should not repeat his theses, but rather place ourselves in his school of thought. In other words, we should do today what Aquinas did in his own age by engaging with the thought world in questions of our era. Congar then gives a succinct, a succinct list of the main theological issues of the day as he sees them in 1967. And what is his list, incidentally? How should theology engage with the productions of modern exegesis? What are the tasks of ecumenism, particularly with the Orthodox churches, but also with the Reformed? How do we respond to the questions posed by Marxism and the problems of economic inequality in the world? How should the church respond to depth psychology? 
the sexual revolution, and the newly developed birth control pill. The atomic bomb with the threat of mass extinction through means of modern warfare. Now that list is not synonymous with the concerns of our own epic 50 years later, but it is not entirely alien either. Now nothing transpired after the council precisely as anyone had expected it to, and great changes occurred to give but a partial list. There were the student revolutions of 1968, only a few years after the council. The sexual revolution produced consequences no one foresaw or predicted, still unfolding in dramatic ways. There was a steep decline in religious practice that took place in Europe and North America, now continuing in South America. The expansion of Catholicism grew vibrantly in the Southern Hemisphere in Asia and Africa. Marxism failed and gave way to a new internationalist market economy animated by new forms of technology. Secular liberalism and capitalism became ascendant in a global culture. The postmodern critique of philosophical modernity dissolved many of the common philosophical presuppositions shared by 20th century European universities. Computer technology altered world communication and the economy irreversibly. And there was a vibrant pontificate for 27 years of John Paul II who presented an intellectually plausible and spiritually profound vision of Catholicism in the midst of the modern world shortly after the Council, which I would argue continues to play out as the still normative intellectual and cultural influence in the Church's intellectual engagement with modernity and her interpretation in the Second Vatican Council, including in the current pontificate. Now, without seeking to evaluate here the many facets of the Council and its aftermath, I would simply like to state at this juncture that I take Fabro and Congar to both be correct, but each in a different respect. For one, Thomism is above all an integral way of seeing the world rightly in light of realistic principles that structure the real. It is a scientia and a sapientia, an explanatory science and a form of wisdom. For the other, it represents an intellectual stance or a way of thinking of the Catholic intellectual life, a vitality of engagement with the contemporary issues of one's own age in the service of evangelization. So you have two poles of emphasis, integrity of principles, vitality of engagement. Evidently, no opposition between these two is required, but there is a need to understand them in their proper order. And so toward that end, let me reflect briefly on each point with a view toward answering the question posed implicitly by the title of this presentation, What Should Thomism Aspire to Do After Vatican II? So toward the first point, let's consider the integrity of Thomism. What is it essentially? First, we must note that it is painfully minimalistic to say that Thomism should represent to us merely the valid aspiration to do in our own time what Aquinas did in his, to create by dialectic out of the myriad incompatible webs of opinions that currently occupy our own cultural space, a uniquely Christian vision. That might be an aspiration inspired by the example of Aquinas or not, but certainly it is not a stable and integral form of thought we might call Thomism. 
It is nothing like the perennial philosophy that is alluded to in recent ecclesial documents like Aptatum Todius, Fides et Ratio, and note well, as recently as in Veritatis Gaudium only some months ago, each of which advocate explicitly for the study and transmission of the philosophical and theological patrimony of Thomas Aquinas in a perennial manner, which I take it means doctrines that aren't entirely subject to alterability of through time according to pragmatic criteria, whatever the alienists may say. Now, on the other extreme, it seems like it is a danger to, devo- to, to define Thomism merely by reference to Aquinas's most unique and philosophical, phil- most unique philosophical and theological theses, those teachings that set him apart even in the 13th century from his scholastic contemporaries. I'm alluding to theses like those of the real distinction between essence and existence in all created beings, a theme dear to Etienne Gilson as the chief moniker of Aquinas' thought, which sets him apart from all others and by which he attains a kind of summit in the history of human thinking. Or you might, with Fabro, talk about his particular doctrine of participation, deeply related to the metaphysics of the real distinction or his affirmation of the soul as the subsistent form of the body over and against certain Augustinians, such that the person is one composite substance composed of body and soul, or his teaching on the agent intellect as the natural principle of human cognition with some differentiation from Bonaventure, or in theology, the uniqueness of his treatment of the persons of the Trinity as subsistent relations, his doctrine of the infused virtues, I mean the infused moral virtues, not just theological, his theology of transubstantiation, so influential at the Council of Trent, his particular theory of the character of priestly ordination, and so forth. Now, surely these insights are part of the Thomistic heritage, but taken in themselves, they would represent too narrow a definition, and I would even say, in a way, a psychologically insecure and negative one. How is Aquinas originally not like everyone else? Just in this way, we must emphasize what Thomism is. Instead, I think we might say the following. Philosophically speaking, Thomism is broadly conceived a a Christian Aristotelianism of some Neoplatonic provenance based in the classical philosophical patrimony of the West, expanded organically and developed insightfully in the light of Christian revelation. Said in this way, the Thomistic heritage typically transmits certain principles that derive organically from Aristotle himself and other readers of Aristotle, including his Neoplatonic and Arab interpreters, that are not held only by Aquinas, but that are common to the broader scholastic community as well. And I'm thinking here of non-trivial examples of things Aquinas holds in common with other scholastics, like the epistemological distinction between speculative and practical intellect, the the study of the categorial modes of being and the four causes the hylomorphic theory of matter and form as the co-constituent principles of nature, the understanding of the soul as the form of a living body, the distinction between substance and accidents, actuality and potentiality, a teleological theory of human agency, and a virtue-based and eudaimoniac account of human morality. These are broader than just something specific to Aquinas, though, of course, the thematic in Aquinas' thought. At the same time, a Thomism does entail a unique account of the broader philosophical patrimony that is marked radically in its depths by the Christian tradition and by Aquinas' original genius and insight in interpreting that tradition, 
So we should consider in this respect the kinds of doctrines that were mentioned above as Thomistic, you might say, as a Thomistic species within a common scholastic genus. St. Thomas's metaphysics of the real distinction as an interpretation of the act potency distinction, his interpretation of the transcendentals, his philosophical treatment of creation, the arguments for the corruptibility and subsistence after death of the human rational soul that are proper to Aquinas, and the way he conceives of it as the subsistent form of the human body. Aquinas has a very original account of the human emotions, and his action theory analyzes the various moments of the free human act, moral objects, ends, and circumstances in a profoundly vivid, unique way. And you could expand this list, but the main point is the following. Thomism does contain, philosophically speaking, a coherent body of doctrine, an account of the structure of reality, and is at the same time well-grounded in the larger tradition of European philosophy. So it should not be reduced merely to a sociological motif or a merely formal intellectual aspiration to dialogue devoid of clear content. To understand what Aquinas is talking about, what, to understand what Aquinas is arguing about the nature of reality, one must develop a habit of consideration of the structure of reality itself, seeking to understand if the analysis given by the Thomist tradition makes sense, is defensible, is organically uni unified, or is not. So it's the truth about reality that is at stake, and not mere procedure. And at the same time, Aquinas' thinking is rooted in a larger tradition of conversation, including conversation in the midst of controversy and confusion, and dialogue and openness to new surprises. So his tradition does not emerge from nowhere to be interpreted only in a hermeneutic of discontinuity with his forebears or successors, as if we had to be wed to a stark Heideggerian meta-narrative from the mid-20th century, wherein everyone else has forgotten the essential except Aquinas and a few privileged modern interpreters. Second, theologically speaking, Aquinas' theology takes its point of departure from the teaching of Christ and the apostles, as transmitted and understood by the church through sacred scripture and tradition. Aquinas, as a theologian, is a model in his own right, as he is constantly seeking to understand the principles of divine revelation and the order intrinsic to these principles. His thought is, in this respect, both historical and analytic, biblical and patristic, but also scholastic, demonstrative, rational, and procedure, and at times, very intuitive and highly mystical. Reading Aquinas teaches one how to think theologically. To say that Aquinas is a great theologian is, to not, is not to deny that he was a great philosopher. As he himself points out, Sacra Doctrina ordinarily makes use of a number of philosophical, historical, and scientific theories that are not derived immediately from revelation, but which enter into the speculative habit of theology just because theology can and must make use of them as our encounter with grace redeems, purifies, and elevates the dimensions of our human nature. A clear example would pertain to the study of the humanity of Jesus Christ in sacred theology. God has become human. But then what does it mean to be human? What should we believe about the soul and body of Christ, his human intellect and will, the nature of his physical death, 
and his bodily resurrection. Here, inevitably, philosophical views impact our particular exposition of the theological mystery, and simultaneously, the consideration of the mystery of God continually invites every person, qua philosopher, to adjust or rethink his views, as the humanity of Christ can teach us as philosophers to think about what is authentically human. When we speak of a Thomistic theological tradition, then we are denoting something complex. Certainly, it is a kind of robust scholastic theology, historically well-informed at the service of the magisterium. It is affected in distinct ways by Aquinas' philosophical choices, but it is also characterized by Aquinas' distinctively theological insights and acumen. Father Norbert del Prado made this argument many years ago in his famous work on Thomism as a Christian philosophy. He argued there, for example, that Aquinas' metaphysics of the distinction in creatures of esse and essentia and his corresponding doctrine of divine simplicity in which the distinction does not obtain in God contributes in important ways to the articulation of the understanding of the divine persons of the Trinity as subsistent relations. God is simple without composition of esse and essentia so that he is essentially his own existence. And simultaneously, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each the one God, the Creator. Therefore, there is nothing that distinguishes the persons of the Trinity with respect to essential nature or divine existence, and each person must be considered in his subsistence to possess the simple plenitude of the divine being. Consequently, the persons are distinguished only by their relations of origin, which are interpreted in the light of the processions of the Son from the Father and of the Spirit from the Father and the Son. The persons, then, are subsistent relations, distinctive personal modes of being, each one from another in all that he is, and each one contains in himself the perfection and plenitude of the divine essence, the Father giving the Son to be pure act from pure act by way of generation the Father and the Son giving the Spirit to be by way of eternal spiration. In his notion of the persons as subsistent relations, Aquinas offered the Church then a particularly balanced form of Trinitarian monotheism because he managed to acknowledge in a very profound way simultaneously both the absolute primacy of the divine unity and the absolute primacy of the distinction of the divine persons. And one might arguably state that this articulation of the mystery of God has not been surpassed by any other exponent of the doctrine. My point in giving this Trinitarian example is not to claim that Aquinas' theology is special because of his metaphysics, nor is the point to claim that all Catholic theologians need to be Thomists. To affirm that is to mistake Thomism for the doctrine of the Church, which clearly it is not, and Aquinas himself is very clear about that in the first question of the Summa, in his understanding of the diversity of schools that can assemble under the common doctrine of the teaching magisterium of the church. Instead, the point is simply to underscore by these limited examples that Thomism has an essence. It constitutes an identifiable intellectual patrimony that deeply affects the long-term health and stability of the Catholic intellectual heritage in the dual domains of philosophy and theology. If Thomism has a role to play in the age we live in since the Second Vatican Council, this is clearly due to the integrity of the principles of Thomistic thought as a way of thinking about reality. 
But meanwhile, Congar is concerned rightly to categorize the contribution of Thomism in terms of dialogue with the thought world of one's age. And I have recast this categorization in terms of vitality of engagement. A living Thomism must not only transmit the integral principle, knowledge of principles, but also engage contemporary issues in the service of evangelization. Here we should be careful. Being in dialogue should not be confused with authentic vitality. In fact, dialogue is not always the sign of vitality. It is sometimes the sign of decline and capitulation or stagnation. Actually, also, my experience has been that when people start to tell you they want to be in a dialogue, it's often a sign of passive-aggressive um, <laughs> attempt at control. I come from a younger generation than some generations who are extraordinarily intense about dialogue, so I have a lot of political experience of it, how it works. Anyway, what Congar is rightly denoting is the following sociological truth. No living spiritual tradition, secular or religious, may win over the culture of its age in any profound way unless it can solve the internal intellectual and ethical problems internal to that age. This includes, of course, the culture of the church. May Thomism be of use to the culture of the church? The question is worth asking. At the time of the Second Vatican Council, the church was, in fact, faced by a number of important modern theological difficulties and, we might even say, cultural and political crises. Whether or not one is satisfied by each of the solutions that were offered by the likes of de Lubac and Ratzinger or Rahner and Chenu, whether by what we might call somewhat stereotypically, unfortunately, the communio branch of the post-conciliar uh, theological life of the church or the concilium branch, wh whichever of those you choose, and whether you like all their answers or not, it is clearly these movements that were attempting to offer solutions of engagement with their culture of their time. And so it's not sufficient to have the right ideas and to harbor them protectively unless you can also commu communicate a renewed sense of their vitality and helpfulness in a context in which they are needed. In other words, we stand in need of articulations of Thomism sufficiently consecrate, conce excuse me, sufficiently concentrated and integral so as to be useful, but also sufficiently accessible and pertinent, evangelical and hopeful, so as to be missionary. We might argue that in the past 50 years it has become apparent that many of the influential theologies of the post-conciliar period are not today in any position to attempt to once and for all replace Thomism in the post-conciliar landscape as the normative guide to modern Catholic intellectual life. To take an example unpolemically and simply descriptively of the theological anthropology of Karl Rahner, which greatly influenced the life of the church in the 1970s, due in part to its profound systematic unity and its engagement from measured and principial sources with contemporary questions. Rahnerianism presumed a kind of normative modern European intellectual culture and consensus in that culture that no longer exists, arguably. That's to say, the reception of a certain kind of post-Kantian intellectual landscape with strong influences from Hegel and Heidegger, characterized by certain shared political goals. That consensus has since perished in the flames of postmodernism, aided in fact also by the rise of analytic philosophy, 
and also affected by the rise of an aggressive new scientific positivism. These influences do not always overlap and often conflict with one another, but they have completely reshaped the landscape interior to the European university, marked increasingly by scientism, various kinds of postmodern hermeneutics, and the various new forms of analytic philosophy. Students in the contemporary university do not suffer from an overcommitment to the tired categories of an intellectually stifling traditional scholastic metaphysics, an unyielding perennial philosophy repeated without reflection. In fact, they have never heard of that tradition and have no access to it. Rather, they suffer acutely from the lack of any normative philosophical orientation or basic unified intellectual formation at all. So often nowadays, their undergraduate formation is characterized by pragmatism centered around commerce, technology, and scientific learning. Typically, they are offered no unifying account of reality that spans across the diversity of the intellectual disciplines they engage in. And indeed, where would one be readily available? University culture today is characteristically dominated by a constructivistic postmodernism allied uneasily with the politics of liberal capitalism, liberal capitalist liberalism, and scientific positivism, each of which offer truncated visions of reality and which are in fact sometimes deeply incompatible with one another. Students often long for some way to make sense of the unity of philosophical experience so as to see how the world might have some analyzable overarching meaning. And if they happen to be Catholic, they want to see how the various disciplines of learning, whether scientific, literary, or philosophical, relate to the core theological tenets of their faith. Now, strangely, in this context, the Thomism that was understandably viewed by many as a cultural impasse at the time of the Council surprisingly can be understood today to be of unique relevance. However ironic it may seem, I don't say the conclusions, but the aspirations of a book like Jack Maritain's Degrees of Knowledge seems to be of the most critical importance just in the juncture in which we live today. I am not suggesting that Thomism should be presented under any kind of triumphalistic banner as the solution to the modern world's intellectual problems, or that the 24 Thomistic theses are the ready-made response to the thought of John Rawls, Michel Foucault, or Gianni Vatimo. The claim I'm making is more measured happily in our own age, Thomism has become one of the plausible contenders present that provides an authentic vision of the sapiential unity of human knowledge amidst the diversity of university disciplines, which continue happily to proliferate. Politically, our situation is one of cultural disenfranchisement, to be sure. Those who teach Aquinas' thought are often almost complete outsiders in the modern secular university context. An underground movement, frequently un un non-understood in public discourse. But the rivals who today offer either the church or the modern world a plausible narrative of the intellectual life are diminishing and are not having such a facile time themselves, as the Dominican friar of the Toulouse province said in the 1970s during, during an episodic period of particular turmoil, brother, Brothers, things are bad here, but by the grace of God, they are worse elsewhere. <laughs> if we return to the sociological aim of winning the confidence of the larger culture today by profoundly engaging with its internal problems, 
inside the church or outside of it, it is not much easier to be a Kantian, a Balthazarian, a Marxist, a logical positivist, or a Derridian than to be a Thomist. In this heterogeneous landscape, there is an increasingly level playing field, and in such a case, it is not that bad to have Thomas Aquinas on your team. So, what central issues does the Catholic Church face within our own larger culture today? I've mentioned one above, which is the problem of the unity of the scientific disciplines in the modern university. We might briefly add a selective list of three others. First, I think it is fair to say that no Catholic theology in the 20th century seriously engaged with modern Big Bang cosmology and evolutionary biology. This means that Catholic theology has ignored or failed to engage with one of the core foundations of the modern university, and today these disciplines of the modern sciences stand at the center of academic culture because they produce technology, useful knowledge for the economy, and receive research grants and professionally oriented students from all cultures. The natural sciences are an inadequate but real intellectual lingua franca that unites uh, students from all over the world today through the study of the sciences. The natural sciences, um, and, those who would, and, th- and we should add, those who would advocate for a somewhat militant secularism, a so-called new atheism, typically claim to be the true advocates of the modern sciences, as if this new universal culture of the sciences should vindicate a new universal culture of secularization. But at the same time, it's quite unclear within the larger university culture at large what philosophy might be employed to rightly interpret the discoveries of the natural scientific revolution. Analytic philosophy has, not, has no common doctrinal core to employ to decipher the significance of the natural sciences or to interpret human nature and our ethical life in society in relation to the explosion of modern scientific learning. The university remains theoretically disoriented so long as this is the case. In the 20th century, Thomists of the so-called River Forest School in Chicago claimed that Thomism could offer a needed grounding to the study of modern physics, as well as an appreciation of the role of evolutionary biology and psychological neuroscience for an understanding of the human being, while still underscoring the uniqueness of the spiritual principle in the human person and the importance of metaphysics and a philosophical understanding of the doctrine of creation. Modern analytic philosophers typically want to see themselves as the handmaidens, so to speak, of the scientific age, who serve to facilitate the emergence of this scientific culture. But they also struggle incessantly to understand basic problems that the sciences themselves confront, like what is causation? Are there natural kinds or essences? How can we conceive of cosmic order? What is the unity of living forms? What is animal sentience, intentionality, and is it distinct from human rationality? In the spirit of River Forest Thomism, there is a wonderful opportunity for a younger generation of Thomists to weigh in on these topics philosophically and theologically for the good of the church and the health of the greater culture at large. How does science and philosophy and human ethical culture work in an integrated fashion. Secondly, sexuality and gender. The teachings of the church that will remain most contested or misunderstood in modern Western culture are those that challenge directly the lifestyle changes that have emerged from the sexual revolution. Increasingly, they mark out Catholic Christians as 
somewhat unintelligible subjects in the modern secular state and even as potential enemies to various political factions. Here we have only to name fundamental teachings that we know are frequently misunderstood or dismissed, the dignity of human life from conception to natural death in a culture in which abortion and euthanasia are increasingly commonplace, perhaps even seemingly banal. Marriage between men and women as the morally appropriate context of sexual love, the procreative, procreative character of sexuality, the intrinsically problematic character of contraception, and somewhat related to this because it's grounded in gender, the celibate priesthood, the all-male priesthood, and the complementarity of the sexes, including the, um, the church's traditional emphasis on the integrity of uh, women's consecrated life as a distinct form of sanctification. And in addition, we can note the expanding set of bioethical issues where the culture embraces practices the church cannot condone, in vitro fertilization, same-sex adoption, the day-after pill, prenatal eugenics. Such practices are becoming statistically more frequent. These neuralgic issues are all related in some way to themes of sexuality and gender. They touch upon the very nature of the human person as an animal, but as an animal capable of serving God in his or her body, as an inherently political animal who was, bo who was born into and cared for by a family of persons, a mother and a father, and who is a fallen human being, in many ways wounded and weak in his or her body, capable of sexual disorientation and of an almost religious obsession with sexuality, one that can in turn rival the claims of the transcendent God. This modern human being who is in some way hypersexualized is a being in need of mercy and compassion, as is rightly emphasized by Pope Francis. It is also this human being who can discover God precisely in the complex difficulties that arise from the world of human sexuality. And it is necessary that we discuss, discuss such topics with clarity and nuance and resituate their consideration within a deeper treatment of the human person as a spiritual animal bound by inextinguishable desires for happiness, capable of gradually developing the virtues and of serving God in the body, capable of knowing the profound peace and tranquility that comes only from the internal governance in all things by human spiritual love, reaching deep down even into the roots of our own sexuality. Clearly, we cannot simply ignore such topics either individually or in our own respective religious communities and hope that they disappear or that someone else braver than us will deal with them. It used to be a question of how Catholic intellectuals could effectively change the dominant views of the mainstream culture by appeal to our own ethical tradition, but today it is increasingly a question whether the dominant culture will permit Christians to articulate and practice what they believe. The truth is somewhere in the middle. We are to be a creative minority who present an alternative, and we are to speak with compassion and realism to all the persons of our own era in their difficult human sub situations and choice making. Let me move to my last and final theme. Dogmatic theology today lacks unity in the way that it explains the central mysteries of the Christian faith. Mary Dominique Chenu sought to remedy this by referring to Aquinas' Exitus Reditus Schema, Everything comes from God and everything returns to him. These are, in Chenu's vision, you might say the first two principles, the, 
the kind of orienting principles of a theology of the divine economy. Chenu was seeking to read Aquinas' Summa in a way so as to procure for our own historically-minded era a Thomistic theology of human history, wherein human lives are understood in the light of the economy of God. In Chenu's reading of Aquinas, dogmatic theology is a kind of meta-history. Now, it should be said that modern historical studies in scripture, patristics, medieval, and modern thought, and in the domain of Thomism itself, have greatly enriched the intellectual patrimony of our time, and, some study, and such studies are in some sense essential to a healthy theology. And here I second and agree with what Father Schenk said so eloquently. Historical studies provide us with intellectual orientation so that we may better perceive the conditions of our own historical time in which, of the historical times in which revelation was received and composed, in which subsequent doctoral, doctrinal de, tradition developed across the ages, as well as understanding the intellectual landscape of our own era. All this can readily lead to speculative knowledge since the recovery of the past opens us up to a principled, profound analysis of reality as it has been rightly understood by our forebears. Historical study then is not an enmity with speculative theology when rightly understood, but we do live in a time in which the study of the structure of the mystery of the faith can itself be neglected. Just what does it mean, not to speak about the history of ideas regarding creation, but to articulate the doctrine of creation, not merely as a historical topic of medieval theology, but as the foundational reality of our own being? What is the meaning of the old law as related to the new for the church and humanity? How is the old law a living source of the voice of God among us, even if it is also a study of historical, theological, and biblical investigation? What is justification and how does it relate to merit in an ecumenical perspective historically construed, but also in our own search for personal salvation as a church? How ought we to understand the ontology of the incarnation or the effective instrumental causality of the sacraments? We can study these questions in a historical optic to be sure, and we can do so in the service of a Catholic Thomistic theology as such. Yet we must at some point answer the questions as questions of truth. And truth be told, today academic theology in many quarters is largely in the habit, not so much as of confronting such questions constructively, but of somewhat helpfully, but in a limited fashion, rehearsing the historical opinions accurately. It is a mistake to try to overcorrect in the other direction. What we need is a historically sound approach to the Bible, the fathers, the medievals, and the moderns, but one which also seeks to answer speculative questions, to engage with the deepest theological questions of all time and of our time, and to present these to the persons of our age, often themselves deeply intellectually and theologically disoriented, in a unified and coherent way. That is to say, we need a living, Thomistic, dogmatic theology. And this is especially the case when it comes to teaching seminarians, future priests, and religious those who stand most acutely in existential need of a grounding in authentic theology for the contemplation of the mystery of God and the preaching of its truth. In stating things in this fashion, I'm seeking only to repeat what one finds in Optatum Totius, paragraph 16, quote, ultimately in order to throw as full a light as possible on the mysteries of salvation, students should learn to examine more deeply through speculative labor and with St. Thomas as master, all aspects of the Christian mysteries and to perceive their interconnection.
One can only do this as a service to the vitality of theology in our own age uh, if we practice theology that peers into the mysteries of the faith and seeks to understand their unity and inner intelligibility in light of one another. And I make here allusion to the 19th century idea of the analogia fidei. The scientific and contemplative sapiential dimension of theology is most essential to the intellectual life of the church. Allow me now to conclude briefly. Paul VI said that in the modern age, people will believe in the gospel when they see people giving their lives for it. There can be little doubt that we live in an age that gives more importance to witness of life than intellectual argument. This may seem like a problem for the revival of Thomism. Nevertheless, we should recall that the great scholastic schools were formulated, not in fact, for internecine rivalries between the religious orders, but to facilitate the great missionary movements of the orders that sought to bring the gospel to all quarters of the world, first in medieval Europe, but eventually in the new world of the Americas and in Africa, where Franciscans and Jesuits and Dominicans and other orders ain't helped by the universality and the, the penetration into human life of the scholastic tradition, were able to enter into the most alien for them, contexts of culture, and to identify the shared dimensions of human nature with the personages they found, and to articulate with compassion and truth, at least at times successfully, the truth of the gospel, to baptize, to preach, to educate. They were strengthened in this act by the living traditions of their scholastic heritage. In our time, this kind of unity of life of the old orders between prayer and common life, study, scholastic learning, and missionary vitality has often been fractured. But we do still find living resources of shared lives of Thomistic study in the heart of religious orders, not simply the Dominican, also sometimes the Carmelite, the Benedictine, or many of the new proliferating orders in the life of the church today, where Aquinas serves as a mentor and a guide for formation in philosophical and theological study of the human condition and the mysteries of faith in the context of a life of prayer and oriented towards missionary engagement. So, the treasure still exists, and the treasure is one that is living and which can be used to fructify the efforts of the church. The, re the revitalization of Thomism will succeed best where it is lived out within the context of dyna dynamic forms of religious and sacramental life and committed to evangelical preaching. So first then, integrity of principles. Second, the vitality of contemporary engagement with the thought world of our age. And third, the aspiration to live this out within the context of a dynamic ecclesial and sacramental life. These are plausible aims for living Thomism after Vatican II. Thank you very much.
get it correctly that from the philosophical point of view, Jonathan would be questioned Aristotelianism with some neoplatonic features. Uh, I would contradict this very strongly because I'm convinced, as uh, Thomas Schrinn has shown, that uh, Thomas elaborated a true synthesis of, uh, out of those two uh, sources and that are not just two heterogeneous elements put one uh, next to the other. Uh, second uh, thing is uh, when I wondered about uh, the play on Vatican II uh, by many theologians of the 70s when I studied theology myself, uh, and then had at my disposal a complete concordance of the texts of the Vatican Council. It was not only St. Thomas Aquinas, who as the only theologian uh, was uh, involved and quoted several times, uh, St. Augustine just one time, and nobody else besides, but the whole characteristic vocabulary of uh, hermeneutics and phenomenological uh, philosophy, including uh, Heideggerianism, was just not present, and I have the impression that it is a misinvocation of those theologians to claim themselves on Second Vatican Council because their uh, themes and their expressions are not to be found in the texts of the Council. Thank you. Well, let me give two responses. Um, well, respond to each other. Thank you for those excellent questions. So Father Walter has helpfully referred to one of the famous quarrels that Thomists enjoy maintaining rightly between the question, and I made reference to one wing of the argument and he made reference to the other wing, which is, well, there's different ways to handle this, but should one read Aquinas as a kind of Aristotelian? Is that licit? There's lots of people who try to do that. Should one read him more in a Neoplatonic direction? There's some people who try to do that. Or should, as... Uh, Father Walter just made reference to, and as a, a person like Monsignor John Whipple would strongly emphasize, one see Thomas Aquinas as a kind of unique synthetic philosopher who stands in his own right and assimilates things to a kind of new Thomistic philosophy. Um, and another connected argument like this is, uh, what's the order of the various uh, parts of Thomistic philosophy? Does one need to go through a philosophy of nature to get to metaphysics? And there's a, that's another sort of celebrated quarrel. And let me just say two things about that. I mean, I, I do tend towards a more Aristotelian reading, but with great respect for alternative. I think any reading needs to be nuanced. But um, I, I think it's important that, um, I think it's fruitful to have those kinds of debates, even if one ends up with some slightly different refracted opinions about Aristotelianism versus originality versus Neoplatonism, etc., because it, it, it invites the person to hone in on what, it, it, what are the principles of Aquinas, what are the historical sources, to what extent he seems original in his context, and to what extent he seems derivative. And so I think it, it, the debates themselves are positive, even if we don't always end up in the same place. The second thing I would just say is, it seems to me 
listening to Thomists who have different views about the order of the sciences and the historical sources, they often all agree on the actual principles of Thomism. I mean, when they start to talk about what the real distinction between essence and existence is, they agree on that. So it seems to me that um, that's a, a cause for optimism that even though there's a, a lot of different historical sources and, a, and arguably different orders of learning within the interpretation of Aquinas himself, uh, people agree about a lot of the principles. Okay, so I tend to emphasize the, the kind of homogeneity of the principles. Uh, regarding Vatican II, um, I'm, not, uh, I'm not committed to any historical narrative about, its, uh, about pe- being pessimistic or optimistic about its outcomes. I think I can generate... Um, pretty powerful narratives of either form and and actually probably in a nuanced way with a mix of both negative and positive outcomes that were unforeseen or foreseen both from the council. Uh, I do agree with you that there's no strong emphasis on the engagement with contemporary philosophy, but if you look at the kind of uh, culture around the great reformer theologians, I mean, if you think about someone like Schillebecks or Kuhn on the one extreme, but also even... Um, some of the nuances of de Lubac's embrace of Blondel um, or Rahner's cautious attempts to convert and make use of or correct Kant. The spirit in the air is one in which the modern philosophical resources are now in a certain way a, a fundamental vehicle. Um, so I don't know that that could be named as a, as a, a caused by the council, but it, it's certainly part of the larger culture of the council. Only one more question. Sure. Uh, thank you for the excellent introduction about the uh, thanks for the thought. Um, you said, if I understand properly, that the integrity of Thomism cannot be narrowed down, particularly to uh, the distinction, certain analytical distinctions. Um, and yet, it seems to me that um, Thomism and its coherency is inevitably metaphysical. And that's what really keeps it together, but that's what creates the coherent system. Now, my question is, when we are in dialogue, or when we have this kind of missionary outreach towards the world from a Thomistic point of view, given that the world that we are developing with is post-metaphysical and is very skeptical at the very best of uh, metaphysical principles, how can we develop an authentic, domestic dialogue with the modern world, given that it is highly metaphysically skeptical? Yeah, um, I'm not going to answer that. I think that's a great question. It's a huge question. Um, but let me just try to answer it briefly. First of all, what I'm primarily reacting against are the thought that is the thinking of two great men who I greatly admire, Etienne Gilson and Cornelius Fabro, each of whom characterized Thomism in its kind of a historical uniqueness by some particular unique original dimension of Aquinas' metaphysics, like the real distinction or his particular understanding of participated being. And each of them underscores something tremendously valuable in that. But I think it's a great error of 20th century Thomism to be overly concerned uniquely, not not to be concerned with, and not even to be concerned principally with, but to be concerned almost uniquely with the metaphysical dimension, as opposed to, for example, the ethics or the philosophy of nature uh, of Aquinas, to say nothing of his philosophy of the human person. So my point is just to back up and get a broader picture of Thomism than some of the, I think, uh, 
overly sclerotic or narrow interpretations of the 20th century, powerful though they are. Um, with regards to our contemporary situation, then, uh, I think there are causes for cautious optimism, and I would name uh, three. One from metaphysics, one from philosophy of nature, and one from ethics. With regards to philosophy of nature, um, it seems to me that contemporary analytic philosophy, as I made reference to, is extraordinarily engaged with the question of the realism implicit in the modern natural sciences, and realizes that some kind of facile skepticism or complete reductive non-metaphysical or non-ontological thinking is impossible. To talk about the periodic table of the chemical elements or the structure of atomic engagements or biological features of animals and men, you need to have some notion of natural kinds of causality. And in fact, many physicists today would say even of all four causes. Um, this, is not a, this is not a question that's coming about simply from within the church. This is a question coming about through people who are outside the church trying to figure out what are the natural structures of reality and what are the kind of philosophical, what's the kind of realism of the philosophy of nature when it's necessary to maintain the project of the modern natural sciences. A second one is um, virtue theory. There's a renaissance of virtue theory in the modern university because it's, people have realized that deontological theories of morality are insufficient. But the problem, as Alistair McIntyre had discovered progressively in his life, and as ethicists who follow him are now noting, including many secular ethicists, you can't really have a structure of virtuous actions without having an animal nature that undergirds it. And so you need to move back to metaphysical theories of what human nature is to articulate what virtues and vices are and what human actions are. And Aquinas has an incredibly robust uh, human action theory that engages those people. And the last thing I would just say is that the, um, the very metaphysical skepticism that you name rightly is an opportunity because it's a natural frustration to the human intellect to be so disoriented that it can't tell whether the principle of non-contradiction applies or not. And so you, you have in, in uh, many people who are, as it were, naive victims of the ambient skepticism, a certain frustrated frustration and openness to uh, rethinking fundamental metaphysics if it's done well and in conversation with the things that they engage with in the university. Yeah, okay, well, thank you all. <laughs>